into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Dammers, Anders Lee here. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Damn America. I'm with the boys, Rag of Meta. Hey, what's up? Alex Patak. I just got out of the boys' shack. Boy, <laughs> are there are a lot of boys in there. And uh, here we are. In the- <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> We're out of the boys' shack, folks. Uh, we are joined um, by a, a man. Uh, <laughs> Some might call him a Heideman, Paul Heideman, who is a, uh, a historian. I, can I call you a historian? Cool. A historian, writer, du jour. Uh, thank you for joining us, Paul. Thanks for hey. having me. Glad to be damned. Alex just got by, got back from the boys' shack, and boys, are his arms boys. <laughs> That's what you did to my brain just now. That's what you did to me. This is a shack where you eat boys. This will be our first episode with a masculine energy. <laughs> Speaking of which, we all had a real testosterone boost this week. Um, <laughs> You just who who else injected Bernie's announcement like straight into your veins? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have read the headline seven hundred times since uh, <laughs> since it was announced. Yeah, it just gets better and better. Yeah. I have the press release tattooed to my body. Yeah, <laughs> I was out screaming at a feminist window, and somebody told me the news, and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Where were you, Paul, when you when you heard the big news? Uh, I was, you know, probably like most of us on my computer. Uh, and, uh, you know, did a little dance. Uh, it was very exciting. Yeah, I think we all did a dance. Yeah, we all did a dance. Um, Coordinated. That's right. Uh, to be honest, uh, I tensed up uh, dramatically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I mean, I, I like Bernie and stuff, but I am also dreading uh, the next uh, 10 years of my life. Right. It, it's... You're dreading losing all of your social contacts who aren't 100% on board, <laughs> especially in stand-up comedy where there is an open... Uh, Democratic primary war <laughs> at foot for the next two years. Yeah, I'm worried. I will say I like Bernie or Warren, and someone will literally shoot me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just happy uh, to think about all these fights that are going to happen because they're all going to be good fights. You know, I mean, they're going to be horrible and awful, but it's going to be the left against centrists, and that's like the fight that needs to happen in America right yeah. now. And his run is 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 pushing that fight to the forefront, and I think that's just so exciting. Right? Yeah. I mean, the, the reason that it's funny how like if you compare the 2016 primary to 2008, like the first the 2008 was in a lot of ways much more vicious but it didn't it got washed over pretty quickly because there was no real ideological distinction between the two candidates but we're still people are saying like oh we need to get over 2016 uh i mean those that hemorrhage still exists and will until we have like a a new form of you know politics. counterpoint you shouldn't get over 2016 because it was a terrible loss that <laughs> scarred history and opening a void into the hell world where we all live now <laughs> civil war pretty un- unpleasant it's best if we move on and don't yeah. think about it ever again <laughs> Uh, well, so today we are going to be um, talking about some people who are, some other people who are not so happy about Bernie Sanders, but from a different 
uh, orientation. The 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 few pe- there are people out there um, who are critiquing him from the left, and uh, one of the claims they're making is about this week is that uh, Bernie's announcement sucked all the energy out of another big event, which uh, of course should be talked about, the teachers' strike, the second teacher strike in uh, in West Virginia now, um, where. I believe, right? They they it was pretty short, but they were going to pass a bill that was going to kind of undo some of the concessions the the state made. Mm-hmm. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's that's my understanding, and that the the Republicans were basically forced to back down on that quite quickly by the the threat of a strike. Um, they didn't they didn't want round two, right? And that ended uh, before Tuesday. I think so. Yeah, I think it was pretty. It was like just on with Monday. I remember the Bernie Sanders campaign reached out to them directly and said, "You have to wrap this up one way yeah. or another. We need all of the attention. <laughs> right. Electoralism is more important." Yeah, I mean, I didn't really see that take much, but um, I, the, it seems like it's probably coming from the same people who complain about like problematic jokes and then are like, "Well, you can focus on problematic jokes and real problems at the same time." Like. They can't. They could admit they can compartmentalize, but that's a very weird uh, take. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like we this discussion keeps happening over and over again. Uh, the the either orers or the both andists have to to <laughs> throw down. That's another battle we have to have because, like, yeah, I just and we see this on the other side too, where there are some people in groups like DSA who are like, we have to focus strictly on electoralism, getting Medicare for all passed. And it's it just, it's a pretty simple argument. Like we can do multiple things at once. We, we have to. Bernie's house contains many mansions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one, one thing I did see a lot was that Bernie's run uh, will ensure like a Harris nomination because it would split the vote between him and Warren which is operating under the assumption that Warren and Bernie will have equal momentum (laughs) which you know whatever I I know they have their very significant differences and I'm not here to dismiss that but there's no indication that Warren is going to carry the same momentum as him so I I don't buy it like I mean he raised six million dollars in like 18 hours like it's ludicrous to already assume that yeah. People are seeing the fight they want to see between Bernie and Warren because this is another race with 10 people in it right now. Uh, and it is February of 2019. So you know what it is, is it's going to be the Republican primary all over again where they just let a bunch of horses out of the gate at the same time and everyone falls all over each other and then we have to shoot them when their legs are broken. <laughs> It's not going to be anything clean about what happens from here on. Yeah. Well, here's hoping Bernie can see Biscuit his way to the the finish line. Um, I mean, with with Warren though, like that is, I guess, uh, something we have to think about. Is like we don't want to split the the progressive vote, I guess. But yeah, it's not clear that they're both going to be in the race at this point next year. The Bernie campaign has said if he is nominated, he will impregnate a new generation of female horses to carry on another line of socialists. <laughs> <laughs> another thing I don't get to is like people are saying like, hey, why why vote for Bernie Sanders? We can vote for Elizabeth Warren. They're just like the same thing. The only reason is, you know... This is the take I've seen the most. Right. Before. Is uh, you're uh, like the testosterone. Uh, but what about... The fact that he's, you know, so you can either be, you could be a sexist or you could be not sexist and vote for Warren or you could, what if you prefer to be not anti-Semitic? 
You know, <laughs> like there's two if, options. If they're the same thing, then why do you hate the other one so much? <laughs> That's just, I heard this with Hillary too. Is everyone's like, there's not a difference between them. Like, then why do you hate him? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Um, it, the the moment we're all in is, I think, can it can be best captured through the progression of video game genres. Okay, 2008, you're getting an Obama-Hillary kind of modern warfare, mono-e-mono, battle royale. What's the most popular kind of game right now? Fortnite, Apex Legends. It's been out for two weeks. It has 25 million players, folks. That's what this Democratic Party is like right now. <laughs> Everyone is just picking up loot and getting into a hut before their friend throws a grenade and kills them all. <laughs> uh, well, so um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about something that happened last week, which I thought was quite unfortunate. We had a uh, potential contender for the Democratic nomination who uh, will not be running due to natural circumstances that prevented him from being alive. Eminem uh, <laughs> is dead. <laughs> I do uh, want to hear who this really is, though. L&L, Lyndon LaRouche, who may be the same person as Eminem. It's not clear that I've never not seen the them in the guy. same room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this is a guy who's who has run who had run for president a number of times and was kind of um, back in the day you could say arguably was sort of of the same scene as Bernie Sanders, uh, Lyndon LaRouche. For those who, who don't know, who just found out about him a couple weeks ago, who is this guy, Lyndon LaRouche? Well, first, I want to ask what drug pusher gave you money to say he died of natural causes <laughs> and to cover up the actual circumstances It was Prince death. Harry. He gave it to a fellow redhead. <laughs> so Lyndon LaRouche comes out of the American far left. Um, and actually, so, you know, he was a member of the, the Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party in uh, the 40s and 50s. And Bernie actually stood as an elector for right. the Socialist Workers Party uh, in one of their presidential campaigns in the 70s. So they're kind of kissing cousins. Um, but LaRouche chose a different path than Bernie, um, the path of megalomania and insanity, and went on to become one of the most successful cult leaders in the second half of the 20th century in the United States, and uh, took his like merry band of followers on uh, an insane journey from uh, far left to far right, um, and uh, and all the while trying to take them to the moon. <laughs> what are the active differences between Lyndon LaRouche and the Rajneesh cult? Mm. Um... Uh, well, the LaRouche cult didn't have as good of a fashion sense. They had kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, much more into earth tones um, and that kind of thing. Everyone um, would wear whatever they want. No <laughs> unity. Um, and so, well, LaRouche started out as like this kind of far left group in the late 60s um, that was kind of like for strange bookish young men, um, a, a type very unfamiliar uh, probably yeah. here. I've never seen one. I don't know what they look like. Um, and uh, and kind of gathered right uh, gathered a, a number of these people around himself and uh, was kind of a, a kind of weird but accepted part of the far left milieu in the late sixties um, and in the early seventies that began to change very quickly as he kind of perceived his competitors on the left um, as kind of more more than friendly competition and launched uh, what was known as Operation Mop Up which was initially directed against the Communist Party which he said was an FBI plot um, and you know the Communist Party at this point is totally marginal on the American left um, but it was the main thing 
nothing stopping LaRouche. And uh, <laughs> he, so his followers started physically attacking Communist Party members uh, with nunchucks were apparently their uh, their uh, weapon of choice in these battles. Um, and then when like the other groups on the Trotskyist left, like the Socialist Workers Party or even even the Spartacist League, uh, you know, engaged in mutual defense with the the Communist Party and you know a really touching moment of, of left unity. Um, the the war was extended against kind of the entire rest of the left, and, and from there, uh, LaRouche moved kind of very quickly into insane anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, um, uh, strange kind of psychoanalytic cult practices, um, and, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So he started out with his own The Warriors-style gang <laughs> fighting communists in the streets, <laughs> and then just one thing led to another from there? Well, like, it, like it goes, you know? That's, that's the way it goes. You start out with nunchucks, and you end up talking about the sexual impotence of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party. <laughs> Do we know like at what point something he just snapped? Like, was there a like there a was defining he sort of point? like a, a sane person for for a time, and then just the, there was a moment where something broke? Well, his so I mean. LaRouche, I think, had a, had a hard childhood. Um, he So he was raised by Quakers. Um, and when you think of like Quakers, you might think of like Joan Baez and pacifism and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think of oats. <laughs> <laughs> but LaRouche's, LaRouche's dad and, and, and mother were, um, were right-wing Quakers who thought that like the American Friends Service Committee were a bunch of Bolsheviks who needed to be rooted out. And so they, they sent like little Lyndon to like Quaker camp when he was a kid uh, with instructions on uniting his fellow campers against the Bolshevik camp counselors. Um, so he learned... <laughs> kind of factionalism you know at, at his father's knee um, in this kind of insane right wing uh, uh, version of Quakerism the, the Richard Nixon school of Quakerism uh, and he also like he he did they did practice pacifism though and like he wasn't allowed to fight back against bullies yeah they were still pacifists yeah. um, but but anti-communist pacifists right that's that's actually a strategy I had uh, to not fight back against the bullies. Some might say that I was not capable of it, but um, it was very much a Quaker. Everyone remembers when Stalin would point at the kulaks <laughs> without going over the line about it. So then how does he go from that to uh, Marxism and then back again? Well, so he joins the Socialist Workers' Party at some point in the in the late 1940s after being a conscientious, a conscientious objector during World War II. Um, and, and it's kind of a, a member for uh, about a decade or so. It's kind of not exactly clear at what point he was kind of a serious member and at what point he was kind of peripheral. Um, but but even then, like, uh, you know, there are reports of him, like, staying up all night reading books and writing about cybernetics and stuff and, you know, other kind of normal behaviors uh, <laughs> like that. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure there was kind of one point when he snapped, um, but there were kind of some, some longstanding pathologies uh, Pathologies that uh, in the kind of feverish days of the the late 60s and early 70s were able to emerge with this kind of full-blown force. Mm. Well, there's an article you sent us um, from the Workers of Vanguard, mm-hmm. which is... I, the the, the finest Spart- gossip mag on the left. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, his, his writing by a pen name, I guess, uh, Lynn Marcus mm-hmm. at this point, and he's um, talking about Trotskyism as an organized sexual impotence. Mm-hmm. And this is in 1973. Was he? Was this sort of some self-crit uh, as a Trotskyist, or had he completely abandoned Trotskyism at that? Well, point? well as you know, as a Trot myself, let me just say that's not true. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, but yeah, he had he had completely left uh, Trotskyism behind at, at the time that this comes on. Um, okay, that uh, that. Yeah, he had he had completely uh, abandoned the Trotskyist movement and, and kind of moved into. But by the time this happens, he's in, in full blown crazy land. And why are they letting him write in their in their paper? Well, so no, this is the Spartacist League at this point is uh, leaking internal memos from oh, the organization. This got is like, it, got this it. is their expose on what's really happening inside the National Caucus <laughs> of Labor Committees. Um, 
Yeah, he says the Trotskyist, not accidentally so, has uh, transferred certain of his special religious needs from the Christ of religion to the Trotsky of Trotskyism. Uh, the fear of rats or sometimes instant Insect substituted is the deeper mental image which one locates underneath the immediate impulses for sexual and other impotence. Rats, see them approaching. See their beady <laughs> eyes. So many beady eyes all looking at us. Uh, he's yeah. He, what is his deal with sexual impotence? Because later he, he yeah he talks about the Puerto Rican Socialist Party. Is he like? trying to call people cucks like what is his his angle here like why does he keep beating this <laughs> this thing uh well i think you would need a closer relationship than i ever had with him to okay. really, really answer that that's like you know that's a, i think uh, only only his own therapist would be, re- really be able to answer something like that but it was a, a really recurring theme in his writing and he kind of you know in the late 60s early 70s there was this kind of marxo freudianism that was uh-huh. very common across the left and he took this kind of took it in this particularly insane direction where he said that kind of and the crazy thing about this is this is developed this is uh, directed against his own followers like this is a harangue against his own party where he's saying you're impotent um you you have vestiges of trotskyism still and this is your impotence because you're afraid of rats you're afraid of being potent because mm. then the rats will notice you i yeah. like that it's written for, like a narrator from a russian novel <laughs> it's like master and margarita shit <laughs> uh well by like the 70s and 80s he's managed to do something like so pretty impressive uh, which is like in in a way sort of infiltrate the democratic party he sets up like a front group and manages to to raise a lot of money mm-hmm. As uh, as kind of like in you know not quite in the Democratic Party but like with a with what's the name again? It's like National Caucus of Labor Committees. Right. Yeah, that's 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 the group uh, the name of his group. And you know when you watch like old YouTube videos of him, you can kind of understand it because uh, like Jim Jones or like someone else, he has this kind of charming megalomania that is like uh, there's just like a forcefulness uh, mm. to to his pre- he believes it so much that you can understand why he managed to get a few hundred people or maybe even a few thousand people across the country uh, to follow him on these kind of this this kind of insane voyage. But yeah, they, he managed to um, run in Democratic primary. And, you know, they, they raised money basically by in the way that, that cults do, which is you have people deed over your houses to your organization, you know, call Jesus. up your entire family and, and beg for money and things like that. So, I mean, he destroyed a lot of lives. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, yeah, they, they ran Democrat, uh, candidates in Democratic primaries. Um, and that's something they've continued to do up to the present day. I mean, a couple of years ago, one of their candidates, I think, won a primary in Texas. <laughs> um, and uh, was she, so it was, a, yeah, it was a black woman in about 2006 campaigning on the, the platform that Obama is the new Hitler. Ah. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember one of them ran against Barney Frank uh, for the, the Democratic nomination, I guess, and, and th- he had to end up debating her. Uh, that was, <laughs> it's a great YouTube thing. Well, it started with she like just showed up to one of his events and uh, yeah, did the Hitler thing, yeah. and he was like, debating you was like debating a dining room table. <laughs> and then he ended up having to do a debate with her. <laughs> <laughs> for like two hours and her thing was like uh, going to Mars with the laser and uh, reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act. So it was kind of like this hodgepodge of like just wacko policies or some right-wing policies and then also just some like uh, kind of social democratic policies mixed in there. Um how did he do? How did he like come up with this? Like he this. And yet, how many of Barney Frank's policies even involved a laser? <laughs> <laughs> Almost none. <laughs> Go to his website. There's not a single tab about a laser. <laughs> well, when when thinking about like what the Larouche Group 
thinks you have to dispense with the idea that there's going to be any like logical core of this that's like ordering things, right. um, especially over the last 10 to 15 years when it was very clear that he was getting senile and that was having major cognitive decline. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, you know, it's kind of a hodgepodge of just whatever came out of his head at a given moment. Like he became really oriented on the dark side of the moon being like the secret uh, to humanity's progress. The um, album? N- no, not the album. <laughs> that, that would be a case that, you know, you could understand. Right. Uh, but no. Um, so it, it really just kind of like whatever, whatever kind of little brain worms were tumbling out of his head. Um, that's what the group took and run with. I mean, you know, in, in, during the Obama year, they went from saying uh, impeach Cheney first. Uh, you know, Bush is a Bush is a fascist, but Cheney's the real problem. Impeach Cheney first to when Obama gets elected, Obama is the new Hitler. And, you know, so they had like their big posters with Obama with a Hitler mustache and stuff. You know, there's no there's no kind of logical principle that's going to explain <laughs> a progression like that. Can you is there a legal like uh, construct to impeach a vice president? Is that a thing you can do? I don't know. That's a good question. Mm, I, yeah, I think the, they would have to resign. Well, yeah, there's there's nothing in something. the rule books that <laughs> says a dog can't be vice president. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's really hit on like a key weakness of our constitutional system here. <laughs> You'd have to like impeach twice. You'd have to impeach the president. Like We gotta impeach the president so we can impeach the vice president. It's yeah. so like, alright. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it would be easier to impeach Bush first. If you really want to get rid of Cheney, that's, you're not doing yourself any favors yeah. by trying to get him out first. Sending Nicolas Cage to museums <laughs> to uncover the documents that impeach a vice president. <laughs> uh, but he was in, in jail for a time. Well, what did he get uh, locked up for? Well, so he was prosecuted for credit card fraud. Um, for you know all of the practices of raising money as a cult, um, like to uh-huh. do. But what's really interesting about this is that the federal prosecutor who took him down was none other than Robert Mueller. Oh, hero! Uh, the other thing I love about this is that his uh, cellmate was Jim Baker, who is a fraudster televangelist who, uh, yeah, uh, cheated his followers out of millions of dollars and then went to prison and is still a fraudster televangelist today. Uh, and got, uh, got taken down um, by Jerry Falwell, who was doing all of the same stuff, but then left Baker on the hook for it. Yeah, how was it? Fucking chances that those two just ended up in a cell together. Yeah. Well, you know, LaRouche would say it's no coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they talked about the Bible the whole time. They just like, yeah, Yeah. it was a bit of fun. Um, But yeah, see, I remember like 10 years ago, Obama had just gotten into office and uh, I, like, you know, a lot of um, sexually vibrant youths was a big fan of uh, Bill Moore's journal Uh and they Uh had a thing... And I saw in Bill Moore's Hormones journal, do crazy be, things to a boy. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be like a rally at the Minnesota State Capitol to, for about Glass-Steagall Act. And oh, it was yeah. me and a bunch of LaRouche people. Yeah. And, was, and they were talking about like they were trying to connect it to the British royal family, of course. That was another <laughs> one else? of his big bugbears. Uh, what did he have against what, what did he have against them? What, well, so, I, I mean, LaRouche's vision of history is... Um, breathtaking in its scope. Um, So he views human history as this battle between the Platonists and the Aristotelians. And the Platonists are the forces of light, and the Aristotelians are the forces of darkness, who who don't believe in human reason, who only believe in observing things and not using our minds to penetrate the true nature of reality. I don't Mm. see any common thread between any of these things he believes in. Classic Aristotelian There's too much about, like, the moon and the Soviet Union to also have a heavy Greek platform that the whole thing launches off of. 
Yeah. These are these are your empiricist prejudices speaking. Um, but so like, you know, so so LaRouche's kind of vision of history is that there are all these battles between like the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Galileo, bad Aristotelian. Uh, Kepler, good Platonist. Uh, Leibniz, good Platonist. Newton, bad Aristotelian. Believes in a dead universe. That's an anti-human concept. Um, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and and they, they believe that kind of the, the British Empire uh, became kind of the, the key concentration of the forces of darkness. Um, and this is in the, in the 20th century that's all mixed in with like very familiar conspiracy stuff like depopulation, you know, like reducing um, all, drug running, all, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and so he, he the, the kind of LaRouche theory is that the, the British royal family is in league with the KGB to uh, to smuggle drugs to and, and ultimately as a, as a a plot to, to depopulate the human race, depopulate the planet, um, and and maintain the the chokehold of Aristotelianism on the human soul. Wow. Uh, so I mean, he still has well, he had like, hundreds, if not thousands, of followers. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with them now? Are they going to find somebody else, or just kind of? No, I, th- I think it's probably going to dissipate. I mean, um, you know, his wife is taking over, but she's never been as kind of forceful or charismatic a figure as him. Um, and and really, without his kind of like driving psychosis, I, I, I don't see uh, the group holding together very well. And they've they've suffered any number of high number of def- uh, high level defections over the past twenty years or so. So you know, when Larouche was in jail for a while um, when he got out they had a, a purge in the group because there were a bunch of people who got too big for their britches um, and had to be taken down his wife Linda LaRouche <laughs> <laughs> no uh, actually Helga Zepp LaRouche a uh, name wow. straight out of uh, Thomas Pynchon novel I heard she's an Aristotelian this is what I heard <laughs> uh, well I mean he's not the only sort of former Trotskyist or current Trotskyist to kind of go off the deep end mm-hmm. uh, but if we could back up a little bit that the the ideology of Trotskyism. Um, I, I haven't quite read enough Trotsky to call myself a Trotskyist, but it seems like a solid sort of foundation. Uh, it's like you know, socialism, but being socialist, anti-capitalist, but, but still being sort of anti-bureaucratic. Um, so how does that kind of get become so splintered and, and factional? Well, every, I mean, every wing of the socialist movement has produced its share of lunatics. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's been various Maoist cults in the United States, um, none, none as big as LaRouche's, none, none as destructive. Um, you know, the, even, even like the, the, the Socialist Party, like the pre-war Socialist Party, had all kinds of spin-offs of people going into, traveling off into mysticism and stuff. Um, and so I think there's kind of a, a, a general, um, it's a pathology of powerlessness, you know, mm. of, uh, when, when, the, when the left is marginalized and weak, um, it makes it easier for uh, you know often manipulative people to to grab a, a, a chunk of people and run off with them. When when the left is strong and there's there's clear goals and clear uh, strategies by which those things might be achieved, the pull of these kind of things is, is way less. And so that's why you see kind of Larouche's group going crazy uh, as as the the uh, '60s radicalism really starts to ebb in the, mm. in the early 1970s. Um, you know that that he's he's grabbing off essentially a small sector of the new left and and, and pulling them into into complete insanity. <laughs> Sure, you have strong feelings about civil rights, but what are your thoughts on the moon? <laughs> if we could back up for a second, my favorite uh, LaRouche theory you mentioned in your article is that he blo- he thought 9-11 was a Saudi-British uh, coalition conspiracy, and I found this old article, uh, this is from his international webcast, uh, to a brief but devastating assault on the true authors of the 9-11 crime. He calls it a crime. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The authors are the British Queen and the Saudi Kingdom. 9-11 was a combination of the British Queen, of the military units of the British Empire, and the Saudi Kingdom. Who are the people who covered up the lie of 9-11? 
the British Queen, the BAE military capacity, and the Saudi Kingdom, and they did it explicitly. And George Bush's family was an integral part of the accomplices. If you want to talk about this issue, that's what you have to bring forth. Everything else is a fraud. Everything else is a fake. (laughs) (laughs) It's just uh, one of those sensitive periods in U.S. history where you go, you want to talk to someone about some local politics, and they lay out the rules first. First of all, (laughs) this is about the queen. (laughs) Princess Diana tried to stop Uh, 9-11. Well, a lot of this goes, I mean, in a lot of the splits we see today, in in a sense, uh, you still see a a lot about um, Luxembourg and that that moment in in the 20s. Uh, Well, who do you think killed Rosa Luxembourg? Well, we're going to start with that. Uh, I'll usually ask that first. I'm going to offer an uncontroversial (laughs) opinion and say it was the Fry Corps. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure. Go with the mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of birthed a lot of the this sort of, uh, I guess, sectarianism, if you will. But um, but one of those... There, there was plenty of sectarianism before that. Yeah, 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 before sure, that. Sure. Um, like, yeah, the, the, the American Socialist Labor Party, uh, you know, which uh, was kind of a descendant of, of the first international Marxist group, uh, was, was completely insane by the 1890s or so. Okay. The but, Queen killed Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> <laughs> but one of these groups that's still, like, around today and, of course, you know, uh, was an enemy of, of LaRouche was the, the Spartacist League. Um, can you talk about sort of their, their origins and how sure. So you know the Spartacist League will, will be familiar to you if you've kind of spent uh, any time around the American far left at events like the Left Forum or things like that. Um, they have signs that uh, somehow are, are all handwritten, but all have the exact same uh, like handwriting. Um, yeah. Part of their cadre training, I guess. <laughs> um, they always have like a backwards R, like on like a lemonade stand. <laughs> they're they're really distinguished by that middle school S, you know. They they, they, they put that on all their signs. They're the only ones who show up to DSA meetings doing karate. <laughs> well, so they actually did show up to um, an anti uh, far right march in Union Square maybe two years ago. You know, and some like alt right shitheads were like rallying like, twenty of them or whatever rallying mm-hmm. in Union Square, and the Sparts show up, and they're it's, this is in the summer, and they're all wearing like leather jackets and sunglasses in weather that was like clearly like way too hot for Alpha. leather jackets and uh like a couple a couple comrades of mine uh like you know we're, we're talking to them and figured out that they all had like vests on underneath their uh their jackets and stuff and that they like they were there to like rumble um like bulletproof vests. So, yeah yeah wow. um <laughs> so they have like cat claws <laughs> so they, they take this stuff uh very seriously but so the sparts um were, were a group that, that started in the mid-1960s were a uh, split off from the socialist workers party which was the the largest group of american trotsky at that time um, and they, they were part of kind of a larger split in the Trotskyist movement worldwide that was essentially a, a right-left split um, and they, they went with the left and then kind of ran with that really far uh, to, to the point where that you know the Trotskyist movement is, is like you said kind of marked by this kind of anti-bureaucratic sensibility and the, and the Sparts basically went the road of, of being Trotskyist but still justifying everything the Soviet Union has ever done right. more or less yeah um, and uh, and so that their their politics are this kind of extreme ultra leftism in, in that sense to complete opposition to all other groups on the left. They they, they really hate all the other groups. Um, they refuse to wear sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> but the, what's really notable about them is their their paper, Workers Vanguard, which they've been putting out since the early seventies. Um, and and for a while was like the best gossip magazine on the American left. Like they covered a split in the Revolutionary Communist Party, which was the biggest Maoist group in the nineteen seventies. Like earlier than uh, it, it, they covered it like in real time, basically. So that like there were definitely RCP members in like Texas or something who heard about the split mainly from Workers Vanguard wow. uh, covering it. They were like obsessed with all this stuff. So that's why they're publishing like 
leaks from LaRouche and things like yeah. that. They're really a gossip bag. And they they also uh, actually had some talent writing for the newspaper. So the editor, Jan Norden, um, could have been writing for the post. Like he was good at this stuff. So like um, during like the Leonard Jeffries uh, scandals in the, in the eighties when, you know, who was a professor at Brooklyn college, um, who was like a black nationalist and a, and a real anti-Semite. Um, and when, when that kind of stuff all started to blow up and there was a bunch of controversy around him, workers Vanguard said, uh, uh, the, the headline was anti-Semitic, di- uh, anti-Semitic demagogue, a victim of racist attacks, <laughs> 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 which is kind of like the, the headless body found in a topless bar of the left, you know, right. like that's, it's pretty snappy. I guess my question was the U S left such a force in the 70s and 60s where having these specific um, ideological splits like uh, pro-Trotsky but also pro-USSR even a notable distinction or is it like now the equivalent of like being on a Pirates versus Ninjas blog? Because <laughs> it doesn't matter if like 75 people have strong opinions on uh, annexing Yugoslavia, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, and these, these kind of splits um, happen uh, when the stakes aren't high, you know, these, right. these, these kind of splits over small things happen when the stakes uh, aren't high because when splitting doesn't carry real consequences, you know, when splitting carries real consequences, people often stick together even when there are massive uh, differences of opinion and differences of strategy, which, you know, I mean, is the case in DSA right now, I think, yeah. but the stakes of, of DSA splitting would be very high. So people want to want to try and work it out right for the kids. That's my caucus. No split caucus. The Blink 182 caucus stay together for the kids <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah it seems like a lot of these strategies and, and the the platypus um, society what is it platypus society yeah they uh, they have this a similar strategy too where it's like um, you, you don't it's not about meeting people where they are it's not necessarily we're not really ready to build a mass movement yet uh, the, the job now is to get everybody on the same page and the way you do that is by showing up to their meetings and shit talking basically and, and, mm-hmm. and physical and physically intimidating yeah and that's that's what the Spartacist League very often does um, and you know in the US they've been banned from any number of left groups meetings because they show up and shout at people um, although you know I went to a conference in Canada once and it is different in Canada they're nicer they come to your meeting and they're like <laughs> well you know uh, the reformists are leading the workers to a bloodbath um, the, the international socialist tendency is on their knees for the Ayatollahs. Uh, they really sold out in Iran and you should check out our newspaper. It's it's not like the kind of shouty, abrasive stuff you get in the U.S. I don't know what you guys are doing after this, but we're going to head over to Timmy Ho's and kill a manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember going to a, a, when I first moved to New York, I went to a platypus uh, meeting and at this time I was sort of, you know, into the Green Party. Yeah, you uh, look like you go to a platypus meeting. <laughs> yeah, I tried, but one of their tactics was to uh, have a vigorous debate and to not really um, be that concerned about the amount of spit leaving your mouth and they how much... They jumped you in to the platypus gang? <laughs> they tried, but I you know, I liked Jill Stein. This is 2012 before she was... Uh, yeah. Back when she was cool. Back when she was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that they're another group, the Platypus Society, who... Uh, Sold out to Bega Jamu Barak. <laughs> 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 um, they kind of they're more of a reading group than anything else they're not really trying yeah. to become like a, a party or a faction or anything well, well I mean no, it's their no, faction th- but th- that's that's their ambition I mean the Platypus yeah. Society is in some way an analog to LaRouche's group in the late 60s where they're like kind of a group of like these bookish young people who are interested in radical politics but um, they're you know you go to their meeting and it's a little strange um, but really I mean they, they actually uh, come out of the Spartacist League so their, their founder Chris Catrone was a member of the Spartacist League and he's carried the Sparts approach to politics into Platypus 
Platypus. So, you know, the Platypus League doesn't kind of say this forthrightly, but their their internal kind of correspondence has been leaked at various points. And, and in it, aside from, you know, Chris Catrone telling the group, you should always be asking yourself, what would Chris do? Um, and other very healthy group culture, <laughs> things like that. Um, what's very clear... Democratic Marxist rules. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's very clear is that they view the entire rest of the left as an obstacle. And that and so, you know, their slogan is right. the left is dead. And what they mean by that is the left is dead but doesn't know it. And their job is to show the left that it's dead by provoking it into realizing that it's dead. And, and again, like the LaRouche group, uh, group, there's this kind of weird psychoanalysis analytic stuff that's uh, kind of incorporated into their political vision. Maybe I just was supposed to read something I skipped. Why are they called the platypus group? Well, so Engels famously thought that the platypus was not real. <laughs> oh, he, he, okay. Huh. So the left is a platypus. Yes, exactly. Their 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 kind of uh, idea is that like they are they are this thing that like kind of shouldn't exist, um, like the platypus, because the left is dead. You see, comrades, in our society, meritocracy is but a platypus. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's just how you connect with people. <laughs> Come to where they're at. They're talking about platypuses. They want to know if they're real. They know they're not. <laughs> just frame things. And if they're a platypus, well, I'm still on their email list uh unfortunately but they uh, they kind of gave in 2016 a, a soft endorsement to trump is that right yeah yeah Catrone wrote an article called why not trump that that's was, cool yeah uh, that's good, cool. good luck for the left yeah. <laughs> i love being associated with these people <laughs> <laughs> right the, the, yeah that's playing into like the caricature that there are all these uh left-wing people who want trump instead of hillary and turns out there are a couple well, Several not, people I, I went to college with are right about me that's yeah. I, <laughs> I, I suspect that that was actually part of the goal of that article was to provoke exactly this kind of response of see the left is pro Trump because they, they see that kind of uh, that kind of response uh, the kind of like people getting uh, finding what they were looking for yeah. as exemplifying exactly these kind of dynamics of like why the kind of liberal whole liberal to left spectrum is completely confused and dead right um, they're, they're trolls essentially <laughs> and would they be uh, Trotskyist or just kind of their own thing yeah they're their own thing I mean so they come out of the Spartacist League who are Trotskyist yeah. but um, they're yeah they're they're off in their, their own territory at this point um <laughs> Right. Who is leaking these correspondence? <laughs> I mean, disgruntled ex-members. Who wants this? <laughs> it's like, I got that good uh, dialogue, man. <laughs> emails. I got so many yeah, emails. Yeah, I got, I got it all. <laughs> uh, so, well, there And there also is, is, of course, the SWP, which was sort of the central thing where all these, these splits yeah. emanated from. Uh, we recently talked to... August Nymphs, who's an associate of uh, of theirs, um, they seem pretty nice for well, for these groups. Well, the SWP today is itself basically pro Trump. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were uh, you know they were a real group in forties, fifties, and sixties yeah. that was doing real work. Um, but they they kind of went through an internal um, devolution from the seventies onward. They, they, between in the seventies and eighties, they expelled about two thirds of their membership, um, and their their kind of leadership click hung on. And so now, like, if you go to their website, you know, the, read their newspaper, the Militant, they're covering of Trump's State of the Union speech is like Trump goes after the fake socialists like AOC, <laughs> the fake big government socialists. <laughs> Jesus. What American workers really want is the government off their back. That, that's the line of the militant and, and the SWP these days, which is very sad because they were a group that once, you know, 50 years ago did honorable work. The most socialist thing you can do is come out against socialism rising <laughs> in America. <laughs> and they're also sort of like anti-technology. Right, like I, I remember reading the militant, they were like uh, social media, which is just uh, corporatism or whatever. It's like all they're like so they're, they're a Unabomber. Yeah. <laughs> they're the Unabomber. 
<laughs> they really are. Yeah, they're sort of. Yeah, they're like luddites, basically. What I really hope is that as the um, uh, Overton window keeps shifting to the left, we get to 2024, and this is just the Democratic primary. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people talking about income tax. Let's talk about something real. The Queen did 9/11. <laughs> uh, this is the future liberals want. <laughs> well, as we've, we've mentioned on the show before, uh, presidential candidate John Delaney has yet to deny the rumors Nanders that he is, is a Maoist. Obsessed with John Delaney, I think he's a closet closet Maoist. He has not denied this. Uh, <laughs> he's a closet mouse. That's what he is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I would love if that happened in 2024. It's like, well, we could talk about the marginal tax rates, but what if arms were legs? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get in a fight with my mom about like <laughs> which guns are bourgeois. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we have on the other side of this, so this is kind of like the, the Trotskyist left, um, but then there's also a, another sort of, thing going on, phenomenon happening in the U.S. with uh, sort of more Maoist, uh, Stalinist tendencies, who uh, in some ways are more open to things like working with the the Democratic Party, right? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, Maoism in the U.S. Uh, really took off in the in the late 60s and uh, the 70s coming out of the New Left. Um, and there were, you know, a number of Maoist groups that were very large. And all Maoist groups together probably had 10,000 members or something like that mm-hmm. at one point in the 70s. So, so uh, a good a good number of people. They uh, So in the 80s, you know, they, they kind of, a number of them went different ways. Um, some of them, you know, it's so like there was the the Communist Workers Party uh, in, uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina that tried to shoot it out with the Klan, you know, took like this very militant tack, um, which ended very tragic. Tragically, um, other groups kind of uh, went into the Jesse Jackson campaign um, and right. kind of entered the Democratic Party that way. Um, and so there were there were a whole host of them. And then some of them kind of devolved. Uh, the, the the largest group, the the Revolutionary Union slash Revolutionary Communist Party, devolved into uh, you know a sad schlubby cult, um, which is what it is today, led by uh, Bob Avakian. Which is where we want the conversation to go because <laughs> <laughs> it returns to our favorite subject on this podcast, Bob Avakian. <laughs> it's the Bob Avakian podcast. We got some great quotes for you today folks <laughs> uh, uh, Paul was kind enough to provide for us a 12 minute long rap <laughs> written by Bob Avakian uh, Bob Avakian's classic track all played out this puffed up stuff about the land of the free and the home of the brave a country that built itself on bodies of slaves and ruthless genocidal robbery that spreads its empire through plunder driving countless people under with its bloody red, white, and blue rag unfurled. All this pompous nonsense about the leader of the free world. That's all played out. What's his his history? Like he's, he started out as an organizer in like the 60s? Yeah, like, yeah. So Bob Avakian was like a, an organizer at Berkeley in the 1960s and the late 60s who worked closely with the Black Panthers on like Free Huey campaign and at some point convinced himself that he was the new Lenin and managed to convince a couple other thousand other people of that too. I look myself in the mirror every day and I say, you're the new Lenin and I just don't believe it. <laughs> that's that's the difference between Bob Avakian and you. He, you know, he, he believed has the confidence. <laughs> I want it so bad. Um, and, and so, you know, his uh, his group um, was, uh, again, a very large group that did real work in the 70s, but, you know, through the 80s and 90s, the long period of defeat for the left, again, pathologies of powerlessness, um, it, it really turned into a cult that's main goal now is advancing Bob Avakian thought, what they call the, you know, the new synthesis of Bob Avakian, um, which, you know, contains lines like... Um, 
I think crocodiles uh, will never fly, but humanity can soar beyond the horizon and gems like that. What? <laughs> crocodiles are the Jews. <laughs> do, you, do you see? <laughs> the Jews are a platypus in that they are crocodiles. I hope I'm speaking everyone's language here. <laughs> but he, so, so he really tries very hard to this day to, to organize in, the, in black neighborhoods. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they've done some very alienating things, like during the Kamani Gray um, uprisings in, in, in Brooklyn a few years ago, you know, and there was like rioting in the streets. Um, the RCP went down there and walked around with a laptop playing a Bob Avakian speech. <laughs> just, uh, their contribution to the, the, the fight for, um, you know, for justice for Kamani Gray. I heard y'all like rap. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if this track has made it down to Flatbush yet. And here we go. I'm imagining them on like the subway uh, with their phones playing Bob of Aiken speeches. was like, get some headphones for the love of God. <laughs> Stop doing this. Yeah, but they, they view that as politics, not just being annoying. <laughs> At least a boombox, like a laptop. The problem God. most people have with rap songs is they are not long enough. <laughs> and that's something Bob can fix. It's called praxis. Yeah, he, he never really got over like the, the 90s knowledge of you don't really need like the skit in front of the song. You can just cut the skit out and just listen to the song. Like, no, we want the really long skit in front of the song. Skit-heavy politics. Uh, well, so RCP guys, they, they don't do uh, as much like street hustling as uh, um, the Spartacists do, right? They're just kind of like... No, well, I mean, they go to parades yeah, and stuff at yeah. the, the, the East Indies. They parade that um, every year they, they have a big presence. Uh, so I, I misspoke. I meant they aren't like rumbling with brass knuckles as Oh, often. no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I like first encountered them as a student in Madison in like 2005 or so when they like sent some people to Madison to try and organize an anti-war movement there. And there, of course, already was an anti-war group on campus. So we had a meeting with them and they, of course, played at, out of a boombox a CD uh, of a speech by Bob Avakian that was all about how there is a basketball match for the fate of humanity underway. And one of the teams, uh, this, this may sound familiar to you, it is similar to the, the plot of Space Jam. Uh, one of the teams is much bigger than the other, uh, but the other team can win if all the people in the stands come down and join the game. I want to do a I want to do a new edit of Do the Right Thing, and it's Radio Raheem with the boombox, but it's all Bob making speeches. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been we've been debating whether or not we should play this on on the show, but there is a uh, a rap out there by Chairman Bob where he uh, uses a particular word uh, in a particular way. It's he says a slur, <laughs> <laughs> a word nobody should want to use, a word that just can't be made good, even if a shout out to homies in the hood. This word and everything it stands for, it's long past time it'd be all played out. We'll get we'll get some lines in there, although I'm going to try to avoid uh, the the ones where I will be in trouble. <laughs> so to, to understand this, you have to understand that the RCP has like a particular kind of puritanism uh, behind it. Actually, so they're like very anti-porn. Um, they they like uh, one of one of their leaders uh, had an article called the like the thong or the burqa a, a false choice or uh, something like that. So like they have this kind of streak of like sexual and cultural puritanism. Um, they're, they're they're pretty anti-drug and that kind of thing. And so like. Uh, uh, Bob Avakian's like advice to young black teenagers that they shouldn't be using the n-word uh, is kind of part of that general ethos. That's so. There is a. I don't know if you guys read that last Chris Hedges book, but there's a whole section about 
uh, kink.com and BDSM and the the like pitfalls of pornography on broader society. And like the book is like pretty good. I liked a lot of it, but this comes like. But it's like between a chapter about labor organizing, organizing and like hate groups, and I'm like, where? What the? Like my my girlfriend at the time was sitting next to me while I was reading this on the plane. She's like, what the fuck are you reading? <laughs> like I'm reading one of the leading intellectuals of the American left. <laughs> the Hars, the RCP had to draw a line against porn after too many women kept trying to have sex with Bob Avakian. <laughs> Stop tempting Baba Vakian. He's doing important work. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris Edges does have a, this weird hang-up about porn, sex work. Uh, he has, so, like, old man hang-ups. He does, yeah. Uh, but that, that's kind of a through line, though, through a lot of these sectarian groups is they have, like, weird stuff about sexuality. Ironically, he's kind of teamed up lately with the Socialist Equality Party, yeah. who is, like, they're a Trotskyist organization, but they are, like, staunchly anti me too which i don't know how you thread that the needle the people were asking for it yeah <laughs> where are your left groups that <laughs> are against women yeah i mean they're they're a, a truly disgraceful group that you know uh they're they're kind of like really anti women streak first came out when they defended dominique strauss kahn who was like the head of the uh, the imf or the world bank i, I forget a, a french socialist party uh, politician who was yep. a total neoliberal scumbag um who was accused of sexually assaulting uh, a maid in a new york hotel and they came out and they're like a billionaire assaults a maid in a hotel. Something's fishy about this story. <laughs> yeah, I can't even like. What is the upside for they, you to do that? That's an anti-communist thing to say. I mean, they hide behind this thing, uh, the, the due process thing. Like we're getting rid of. Do- but the, I mean, the truth is, they have a history of like some of their leaders being involved in some shady shits, like rape and stuff. Wow. Yeah. I'm against it. Yeah, they, so they were affiliates of the Socialist Labor League in the UK, which was run by Jerry Healy, um, which was at one point one of the larger Trotskyist groups in the UK in the 60s and 70s, but um, you know, uh, degenerated as, as as things tend to do. And in the in the 90s, in the I think the 80s or 90s, fell apart um, after numerous uh, rape and sexual assault allegations against Jerry Healy. Um, and but uh, Healy and the and uh, the the um, World Socialist website, you know, Socialist Equality Party people were uh, kind of uh, comrades in the in the 60s, working together very very closely and they were uh, copying each other's methods. Mm. So if Lyndon LaRouche is dead... And <laughs> there is his, no hope for humanity. The, and all hope for man is gone, and the mysteries of the moon stay out of our reach, um, and his, his followers are still looking for somewhere to go, um, who's still active right now? Who can the moon socialists turn to? <laughs> Who can the anti-Me uh, Too, uh, pro-moon, anti-queen socialists get behind? Is uh, Bob doing anything new? It seems like he's really tapered off since CDs went to MP3s because then you lose a whole control of a media type thing. You're not really offering a product anymore. Um what is the far left right now? Who who is the loony left? <laughs> well, I, mean, I think there's a broader process of of kind of um, reformation going on on the American left. That's that's going to take some time as kind of new lines of um, of allegiance and solidarity are being forged, and and new splits are going to happen. Um, and I think you know, I mean. We've been talking about all the kind of pathologies of the left, but there, I think it's a truth about American public life that like there's no public space in this country, and so people who are like a little crazy and, and a little weird don't have a lot of places to go, and a lot of them end up on the left. And there's there's an aspect to that that's good, you know, like people, some of those people come to the left and find a place where they belong and become fighters against injustice, and other people 
come to the left and and you know become total lunatics and that's like kind of uh, that's like the dual legacy of uh, of the kind of total hollowness of american public life and the fact that like left spaces are one of the few places that people can go where you know you don't have to pay for anything um you maybe have to pay for a newspaper but you know that's it um, right? it's pr- pretty cheap in comparison yeah would you say there's a trend at all of these people you know in in an absence of kind of off kilter let's say groups uh like this just uh wholesale joining the right right now because when i think of unhinged popular groups i think right wing yeah right away i think uh breitbart.com and you know uh alex jones john birch yeah yeah, and I mean the the LaRouche Polyphonic Spree. <laughs> <laughs> the, the LaRouche group clearly has a lot of overlap with like that that demographic. Although the LaRouche, what's interesting about them is they've always been quite successful in recruiting a multiracial membership. Um, whereas I think like the, the big difference is like the the alt right, you know, is a place for alienated weird white men only, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Where, whereas, you know, people of any other demographic um, are, are more likely to continue finding their way to the left. And, and hopefully the left will be a, a bigger, healthier place that's capable of integrating people and, 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 uh, and, and be, you know, becoming a force for, for something good in American society. We want those unhinged people. <laughs> Stop taking them. <laughs> we, solidarity between the hinged and unhinged. <laughs> what um, is a door but a platypus on a wall? <laughs> Uh, well, do you think now, though, like there is still an important uh, role for like grounding some critique in in Trotskyism, given this history, and especially when we're talking about like uh, organizing with with other parties, so we we didn't get to like PSL, which um, is like imminently more reasonable than a lot of the the groups we just mentioned, but is still tied to these. Uh, I guess you would say the foreign worker states. Like, what's what's the importance of of maintaining a, a Trotskyist line now? Well, I mean, that, that what that means is, uh, you know, what what maintaining a Trotskyist line means is very different. I think, you know, the general politics that the best of Trotskyism represented in the 20th century of opposition to these kind of bureaucratic regimes that name, that ruled in the name of socialism, uh, politics of, of workers' struggle, of, of, of class struggle-based opposition to racism, sexism, and other forms of oppression. I think all of that stuff is, is, is very important. Whether, you know, whether that go, whether that kind of bundle of politics goes under the specific heading of Trotskyism mm-hmm. um, is something I, I, I think is less important, but I think I, I certainly think that, like, the left today has plenty to learn from, from the, the, the better experiences of Trotskyism in the 20th yeah. century that, that we haven't talked about. Right. <laughs> so you want to learn about him here. Do we have like a good bullet point we could throw out or something? Well, there is, uh, I mean, I- ISO, which I like, I-, I went to their convention a couple years ago. I- I'm not a member. I'm in DSA, and I, you know, a lot of that has to do with the Democratic Party question. Uh, but they're a group that, that has, you know, they've had problems uh, internally, but they've, they've seemed to like, they're a pro-solidarity group. Uh, yeah, and I, I think there's there's other groups like that on the, like Socialist Alternative is a, yeah. is a Trotskyist group that is a, a group of sane people. You know, uh-huh. I don't always agree with everything they do, but like they're sane people that you can talk politics with and they're not going to, you know, it's not going to be some point where they start talking about like the dark side of the moon or something <laughs> like that. Uh, right. Those are the guarantees you need to get active. <laughs> we are not allowed to talk about the moon here. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, and a lot of, another elephant in the room, we, uh, weren't able to, to get to that much is, is, you know, 
uh, efforts like COINTELPRO and all the state repression that came and like really fed into this uh, sectarianism. There's uh, a reason people thought the Communist Party of America was run entirely by the yeah. FBI. <laughs> yeah. By the early 1970s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, that could happen again. I mean, it probably they, they're probably gonna, at least going to try to infiltrate groups like DSA if they haven't already. Um, how is that... How, how What lessons can we take from this? Um, not only like being aware and warding off the threat of of uh, state sabotage and also like avoiding splits and sectarianism. Well, this this actually is a really positive lesson from the SWP in the in the sixties and seventies because they were thoroughly infiltrated by the FBI. Um, like ten percent of their membership were uh, informants or, or agents at some point. And they, they had a membership of, of several hundred, you know. Um, and uh, and and when they kind of found out about this and discovered it, they launched a lawsuit against the government um, and won. Actually, they, they they had a very public kind of strategy. Um, and uh, and they kind of you know when they started figuring out who was agents and who wasn't. I, I, I talked uh, uh, years ago to, to Peter Camejo, who was their, their presidential candidate mm. at, um, in, the, in the 70s, and he said, when you find out someone's an agent, always give them the most posters to put up because they'll do it, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's advice to the left today is like, when you figure out who the agents are, give them the shit work to do because they'll do it without complaining. Do you know why? Because they're getting paid, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We don't want to be full-time operatives for socialism, but we can't. <laughs> uh, well, that seems like a good note to, to end on if you find the the, the infol, infiltrants infiltrators yeah. make them infiltrators. moderate the Facebook page yeah, yeah. <laughs> make them moderate the Facebook page <laughs> uh, Paul where can people find you um, so I, I write for Jacobin uh, mainly um, and uh, I, I'm on Twitter at uh, Paul Heidemann great Great. Uh, this is coming out next Tuesday. Follow me at Patak Jokes. I have a weekly comedy show every Sunday at Cherry Tree at 7.30. Bad news, it's a comedy show. Uh, it's Ragameta. Follow me at ACLU Official. I also have a weekly show at Cherry Tree every Thursday at 8 p.m. <laughs> but... I will also. I've been running it longer, <laughs> and uh, also I'm going to be in Austin. If I have, if there are any Austin listeners, I'm going to be in Austin from February 28th to March 2nd. That's three days. I'm doing a bunch of shows, Velveeta Room, uh, shirt thing. I'll post about it on Twitter. Please come out. I'd love to see you. At Andersley here on Twitter, uh, I have my solo show, Dummy, about the autistic spectrum, happening a couple more times. If you're in New York, it's going to be uh, here at Ryan's Daughter. On March first, and then at Cloud City in Williamsburg, and on the on the twenty seventh of March, uh, Pi Dam America. Follow us on Twitter. Thank you very much.